Welcome to Reimagining's podcast by Belong. In this podcast, we revisit conventional themes and view them through different and unusual lenses. In every episode, we speak to authors and experts who have approached a conventional topic in unique ways and upended normal understandings of topics such as love, history, citizenship, mythology, and many more. Urging all of us to question the given and see the world through an intersectional lens. Each episode will cover the journey of these authors and writers. We will break down concepts, introduce new ones and explore the evolution in their thinking. The intent of this podcast series is to provoke people to rethink everyday concepts and realize the importance of multiple narratives and perspectives. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Reimagining series. Today we are discussing reimagining history, rejecting a homogenous past. We have with us prominent scholar Professor Manan Ahmed Asif. who has written extensively on south asian history and currently teaches at columbia university his books include a book of conquest and the loss of hindustan the invention of india next we have professor chinaya jangam whose research focuses on the social and intellectual history of dalits in modern south asia he is currently an associate professor at carlton university the other guest for this episode is archana garudia gupta a leading national quizzer archana has won the champion of champions title from bbc's mastermind india She has written the popular historical anthology The Women Who Ruled India Leaders Warriors Icons and co-wrote the History of India for Children series for Hatchet. Stay tuned to listen to these three authors view history through different lenses and surface common truths as well as rich differences in our past. In the first segment we will hear them exchange reflections about the multiplicity of historical narratives, the need to look at our past and the value of searching beyond mainstream sources. In the next segment Professor Ahmed recounts the formation of the outsider image relegated to South Asian Muslims and expands on his call for post-colonized historians. Professor Jangam shed lights on the dominance of Hindu Brahmanical hold over history keeping and advocates viewing the past through marginalized voices. Archana argues against putting women icons on pedestals, letting them commit follies as their male counterparts. and ends the episode with some advice to those who plan on writing inclusive historical texts we will begin this episode with questions open to all and then move forward to hear in depth individual perspectives of the three guests mainstream history is taught in a linear trajectory with one common timeline to place our past against but in your respective books you have all challenged the existence of just one past instead leaning towards seeing the past from multiple perspectives Can you all tell us why you have chosen this approach and the importance of recognizing multiple narratives? I think the linear narrative that mainstream history argues for is something that emerges out of the disciplining process of history in the late 19th early 20th century. And there the main interest is that nation states get to write their histories as emerging from some mythic past or some conflict revolution and then progress happens so the linearity is how we go from an origin stories to how we go a type of present day moment so we can think of things like after the during the decolonial phases things like developing world underdeveloped world these ideas are all tied to linearity and to progress what one of the main challenges that we face when we think of history as both linear and singular and in a progressive narrative is that we tend to historically speaking miss out on all of the groups or peoples or stories that don't fit that paradigm so if some communities some peoples who are not understood as progressing that they get to become out of sync with the rest of the nation state out of sync with history and i think that's where the pitfalls of linear progressive history are most apparent which is that we this type of history gives a singular perspective that more often than not tends to privilege the dominant majoritarian perspective to continue with what professor ahmed uh, said related to this whole idea of linearity of history I will you know go back to in terms of what Benedict Anderson talked about in terms of imagined histories like history as imagination and imagined communities 
So in this context, when this whole idea of imagination of nation, particularly in the context of Indian subcontinent happens, one of the important thing is that you know, it is imagined as a Brahminical nation state. The way in which these stories are constructed and the, the way in which the very idea of history, like that's one of the things like, I think in the context of what we live in Hindutva world, where Hindutva is becoming a dominant and mainstream ideology in India, I think one of the important thing, the construction of the very idea of history in India, the nation state is founded on this Brahmanical imagination. For me as a you know, student of history and also coming from Dalit background, one of the important things as uh, students, like for example, when I was studying undergraduation and post-graduation, one of the important glaring things we noticed that absence of our histories and our presence. It is that where basically when we are reading history textbooks, either ancient history or medieval or modern, irrespective of what we are seeing is that we are absent in the very narrative of history. And then the whole question of whose nation it is, if that is the way in which you, like as Professor Ahmed said, the dominant communities and people who are supposed to be harbingers of historical processes, where you see that this Brahminical imagination and Brahminic dominant caste ideology and dominant caste histories are presented as the history of the nation. That's one of the way, reasons why you know we started. It is not just about history of the nation, but also it's searching for our own histories in the nation. Where are we and what is our position and where do we figure? That's when I think I started searching for it, both it's a self and all political and also intellectual search in terms of where are the Dalits and where do we see them and how do we look at their histories? Do they have any role at all in this making of the imagination of this nation? That's what the whole fundamental idea of looking at interrogating the nation from multiple perspectives is important in this context that nation is not just about Brahmins and Brahminical imagination, nation is about everyone. That's when you look at people like texts like Wretched of the Earth, for example, talks about you know, nationalist elites imagining and nationalist imagination, how they try to dominate the dominant sections history becomes the history of the nation. That's when I think the Dalit history is very important. What it does is that it not only interrogates, but it punctures the idea of dominant history. First, I'd like to question what is history? It is the story of a people. Now, it could be, there are so many individuals who have existed. The history could be a story of that one individual, or it could be of a subgroup of those individuals. So there are thousands and thousands of stories that exist at a particular time. Now. In every age, if you have a political elite, they will tend to pick out of those thousands of stories, they will pick a set of those stories to be the history of the people as a whole, which is what you call the dominant narrative. Now, what is really interesting for me is that technology today, social media and the internet, information available has multiplied exponentially. And the ability to deliver this information selectively has also become tremendous. Earlier, you would have a few public ways of delivering information. You would have the school system, you would have some dominant newspapers. But now with the Facebook, WhatsApp, you can selectively deliver information. And this information technology revolution, is it going to create one large narrative or is it going to create a number of small narratives which maybe different, totally different from each other and each person only sees their own truth. So I think initially when you had Facebook and the Arab Spring and all, everybody thought that the people whose voices have not been heard, they will now be heard because you have this technology which permits everybody to speak, to put their case out to the world. But our experience has shown over the last 10 years that it tends to actually compress and control narratives. So I think this is a battle still in the making. We don't know which way it's going to go. We don't know what is. Each person now has an ability to reach out to millions of people, but then one person has the ability to reach out to millions of people as well. And this is the ongoing battle. And history is a weapon. Very different perspectives and really insightful perspectives. I didn't think of so much when I was forming this question. But thank you so much for answering that. History books are usually written by the majority in voice. And to find the stories of those ignored by such records, you need to dig deeper. In your book, Professor Jangam, 
you go back to Telugu news reports to track the political mobilization of Dalits. Similarly, Professor Ahmed goes back to examine 17th century Deccan historian Firishta Stariki Firishta, and Archana's book on powerful women rulers of the past cites oral histories and folk tales. All of these are not quote unquote official sources of history. What are your thoughts then on the academic discipline of historical studies and what to keep in mind when trying to find a story of those who have been ignored by official records? One of the important things about writing history of Dalits, especially when I started looking at, in fact, the idea of doing PhD, everyone used to say and ask me, you know, where are the sources? What are the sources like? Because history as a discipline is obsessed with records, like you know, records, colonial records, or some kind of various textual records and you know, evidence which basically is recorded and all those things. So in this context, in fact, as a student, when I started, I remember first time when I went to England, I remember after meeting my supervisor, the second day I went to the British Library and went and asked this British Library person who looks after the South Indian catalogs. I went to her and asked her, ma'am, you know, I am from India. I just joined PhD at SOAS and I would like, this is my topic. I'm working on Dalit history in Andhra Pradesh. Are there any sources? I asked her. She looked at me up and down and asked, do you mean to say schedule cast? I said, yes. She said, but there's nothing here about schedule cast here, she said. And I'm like, you know, it's second day of my life in London and I was like almost like collapsed. I had tears almost and I went to canteen and sat for some time and then I immediately wrote an email to my supervisor that you know I should I'll come and see my supervisor is a wonderful person his name is Peter Robb then next day I went to him and almost like I am in tears and he was very disturbed that this guy comes from India and he's one of those first Dalits to come to my department to do PhD and he's in this situation so he took me to canteen and I remember sitting there and you know he said you came from India all the way struggling so much. You think there is nothing in British library. There are a lot of things. You don't worry. Don't ask anyone. Go to the next six months, read the catalogs. My supervisor just said, read all the South Indian catalogs. Go to the you know, Oriental and African Studies library and just do that. And I remember you know, sitting there just going through various catalogs. I remember after three, four months, I went to my supervisor and showed it was like, you can write, you can spend all your life reading this, writing so many books. So that's what like, you know, one thing is that, you know, in even in librarians, that's what one of the things, you know, places like British Library, they think that nothing exists. But actually, you'll be very surprised. Most of the Telugu newspapers I, in my war car, you know, in fact, things which are not available are available in British Library, particularly, you know, taking from the dominant newspapers like Krishna Patrika or Andhra Patrika. In fact, there are this whole idea of, Cast journals. You won't get them even in Andhra now. Very few libraries in places like you know, Rajmandri Gautami Library or Vetapalam Library has some of them. But British Library preserved these cast journals. If you look at, uh, I used to get shocked that 1910, 1920, like a criminal tribe cast used to have a cast journal. I used to be shocked that where do they have wherewithal to do these sort of things? Why do they want a journal of their cast? And it's so interesting, like that's what the colonial public sphere, one of the important thing is that we think people who did not have power and who did not have wealth and caste status did not have the ambition to write histories. No, they did have. Caste journal is about that. It is about retrieving your dignity, which has been stolen from by the dominant caste. So that's when I started looking for non-traditional, non-English sources as a very important way to retrieve these histories. Thankfully, I was educated in Telugu and till undergraduation, I was a Telugu medium student. So I had this strong base in terms of Telugu language. So when I'm reading, like even now, I just translated one very interesting Dalit text, which was published in 1941. Especially if you're coming from Dalit or marginalized background, one of the important ways is that many times you have to go beyond English to rewrite histories. And that's one another important thing, as Archana said, folk tales, for example. That's what, like, one of the important obsessions for me, the French historian Michel de Sarto talks about everyday life, in which basically talks about the narration of importance of folk tradition as a very important way to rewrite histories and reimagining histories. How particularly people at the margins use their folk tradition and folk ways of living to scar the dominant caste and ideologies. So this context for me, 
telugu sources are a very important way to retrieve these things and and also listening to these folk because i come from village and i had this old tradition of listening attending various things as a child i think that is becoming a very important way to relook at history and the way i want to write the history of our people right please said that the what is available say in the dominant language sources for any history of people who were not part of that dominant group is normally less you will not normally find the dominant language narratives of the centers that is few and far between but you will find it in local languages you have a lot of private records which in india we don't really access we have little access to those private records and for example when i was researching the story of velu nachiar who is a tamil queen and a heroine i found very little in english but i was able to access tamil records and with modern technology use programs to translate bad translations but enough to access the information and then you had people who had private documents who had put it up so here i also have a great hope in the future that as more and more digitalization happens like professor jangam he had to go and make bibliographies in libraries to try and access rare information in unknown languages but soon maybe all these libraries all these documents will be digitalized and you can access them using in different languages you you have machine translation programs which have really become very good so this is a hope i have that you will have so many sources of information the other thing is that when you look at i'll give an example suppose you have say the aryan migration theory see that's a controversial theory and those that theory was formed on the basis of linguistics and maybe some literature like the rigveda but over time you have archaeological remains you have dna analysis and if you think of each of these pieces of information as a line drawing on transparent paper and you overlay each of these on the other there'll be some lines which emerge stronger than the others and that could be an indicator of what really happened it's like a little bit like a rashomon approach to things there are so many views and you have to bring it together to come up with a version the other thing i would like to say is that whatever happened in the past leaves traces in the present in so many ways it leaves it in your body in your genetics in your language in so many customs and over time if you sit and deconstruct these into the elements it quite often can lead you to what really happened and to lead you to a, a linguistics is used for that and now dna is used for that apropos of that i would like to say that today the last few years with dna analysis for all castes in india all castes tribals dalits savarn whatever the mitochondrial dna which is what you inherit from your mother is basically the same and is of a people who used to live in india 40 50000 years ago so we really all come from the same place now whatever your narrative is in the purans or the vedas you now have a different sources of information to actually tell you the real story and that is when people say what is the narrative and can you ever lose a narrative can it ever be suppressed forever i think okay yeah we can't time travel but i think it is very difficult to suppress the truth forever because it will leave traces i think oral history can be a very good place to start investigating something because of course oral history is not sacred right you also know that today somebody says something and you'll find that one year later everybody believes in something which is not true and in history we've had so many famous cases like schlemann or people like that who go by epics or things like that to actually find and verify history so one should not dismiss oral history as a source but as again you have to look at everything from different angles to be able to say things with any level of confidence i think the points already raised are incredibly important but they also tell us something about this idea of gatekeeping that history has always been invested in right who gets to tell the story and w- what sources do you 
keep in an archive in order to tell those stories. The colonial archive always took out any voices that belonged to the colonized and the subaltern. The Brahminical archives took out Dalit voices. The Muslim Persian archives took out voices that were written in any other Pasha, any other language than Persian, because Persian was assumed to be the only language in which we can do these kinds of literary production, historical production. So archives are fundamentally about gatekeeping. That's what defines them. And the archive for the discipline of history was constructed by the nation state. So in a sense, when we say the word archive, when we think, when we go into British Library, when we go into the National Archives of India, what we're actually understanding, there's a kind of a structure of power. And that structure of power determines what gets to be inside of it and who gets to then go inside it physically and who gets to tell that story that comes out of it. And I think the point that Archana is making is very important that there is technologically, whether through mass digitization or through things like genetic and archaeological data, that information overseeds, exceeds the archive. And we have more and more venues from which we can gather more data. Now, the problem, however, is that more data doesn't make for more history. (laughs) More stories can't just come out just because there's more data. We're not any smarter about, let's just say the word democracy, than Rousseau was, even though we have a lot more information than Rousseau did. So I think what we need, however, even with more data, is we need that critical sensibility of telling the stories of those who cannot, for whatever reason, are allowed to or able to tell their stories. If we write a history of the great women queens of India, if we write about Dalit histories, we are actually making a a gesture, an important gesture to a type of intellectual, ethical community concern, right? And I think what we want to understand is that for the 21st century, when there's so much majoritarian narratives, right, whether it's in India or in Pakistan or Sri Lanka or Nepal or Afghanistan, any of the countries of South Asia, what we see is that there's an incredible emphasis on a unified majoritarian perspective. And that perspective is so dominant that one can't imagine how to really contest it. You find yourself unable to to shake that voice. But that's, again, maybe I share the same optimism that Archana mentioned, that I, I think voices will come out. Truth can't stay buried, buried figuratively or practically. And what we want to do is, in the vein of your podcast in reimagining, what we want to do is give people the tools to reimagine that past. Because the resources may be there, the data may be there, but the critical question, the ethics, the training and with which we need to do good material work in order to come to an understanding, right? Like, so when Professor Jangam says that he went through all of the card catalogs, that's diligent, hard work. And that diligent, hard work has to be done in order to advance our understanding of the past. This leads really well to my next question. Why we are having this conversation? Most people's stories, incidents cited in all your books are long gone. So why are we still looking back to mine multiple narratives? What observations do you see that urge you to reimagine the past today? Especially at a time when there are so many new ways, as we're talking about technology, there are also new ways to disseminate unverified information. I have written about women and general history of India as well. And of course, the prime imperative was that I love history. And it's as simple as that. So you do these things because you enjoy them. And then perhaps you look for its social relevance or importance as it is at a later date. Why is it important? Now, all of us tend to take our identities from our past. We belong to a certain community. This is how we behave with others. These people are friends. These people are enemies. Maybe at certain stages in a society's life, people are not so obsessed with their past. At other times, the past becomes all important in the way you relate with anybody. So the past becomes a weapon. It becomes a tool to direct behavior of large masses of people. And as I said, discrete messaging to messaging to discrete groups is now possible with technology and we are seeing the results 
as people understand the technology better and better we are seeing how much is possible end of the day as professor emma said however you cover the truth however you give it a spin and you show it in a particular direction the minute you can cover it from one angle but the minute you look at it from another angle as i said you look at it from some other data say the aryans went from india but if you analyze the skin you say skin like this cannot have evolved in india because of the heat you would have died how do you determine what is truth you make a hypothesis you see if all the facts fit in it and if all the facts fit in it then you accept it as truth however if even one fact doesn't fit then you have to throw out that story and you have to come up with a story which explains all the facts so if there is some narrative which is fitting all known facts then however unpalatable it is it is the truth if you have what you call a scientific temper when you approach things where you evaluate what is there it will come out if not now later the only worry is that how long it will take and how much damage can be caused by not realizing the truth in the interim and da- damage in terms of lives or whatever distress can be tremendous quite often because you make wrong choices i think that eventually each of us has to stick with us to whatever we have said and not give up hope and say that not say that this is the dominant narrative and people are never going to accept what i have because the way things are today whatever story you have if you put it out in the world you put out whatever there is a certain kind of immortality it's not written on paper that somebody can come and burn that library and the last copy goes as of today anything that you say anything that you put out has technically it is immortal so if not now i mean of course the story you say and you try to reach it out to people but if your ways of reaching out to people are blocked and people's ears are blocked that information still needs to be put out there because somebody sometime can access it collate it draw the right conclusions so if you're saying what is my role and why am i doing this part of it is simply that this truth is there and it needs to be put out there is no point in giving up hope and saying nothing is ever going to come out of it i've had these questions raised to me that isn't self respect of a community more important than the truth no as simple as sach bolo satyam vad dharmam char the truth is important in an axiomatic way there is this often quoted line right by faulkner which is the past is never dead right the past is living in the sense that our daily lives materially are shaped by our histories now our family histories is obviously the most obvious sense that our our present is shaped by the families that we're born into and the ways in which they control our world but if we broaden that into the communities that we're born into the cities and regions that we belong to the passports we hold and those passports have histories and of course as you keep adding layers to it the past in that sense is utilized by our politicians every day it's utilized by our religious leaders it's utilized by our community leaders it's utilized by all of the ways in which we create a social fabric and for us to research the history of india the us to kind of think about the histories of muslims and dalits for us to think seriously about the history of women and gender and sexuality is not to kind of engage in what used to be called antiquarianism it's not to simply say here's a random fact from a long time ago and do you happen to know it's not that it's that we need to do better in our own life and sometimes we learn how to do better by seeing how the past gives us examples you can learn from an example both in a negative sense and in a positive sense you can you can see that women were not given any voices or that dalits were kept in a in a position of subjugation by scripts and by rules of caste and rules of decorum and that's an example for us to learn from in order to create a better social fabric a more equitable equi- inclusive society here we can also see that the past is used as a weapon it's used as a weapon to marginalize people a muslim in india can be said you are the descendant of aurangzeb or you are the descendant of mughaznavi 
And by that descent, by that, even if it's you're separated, any random Muslim is separated by hundreds of years and obviously is not the direct lineage, even genealogical descendant of anyone. By that relation, you make them an outcast in the classic sense of the word, out of the community. And you question their nationality, you question their patriotism, you question their right to belong, the right to be counted. All of this is done by deploying the past as a weapon. And I think the critical intervention of scholars that I find to be incredibly important for today is not to simply go to the past in order to tell us something about the past, right? Like this is how things used to be in the 18th century or the 19th century or even further back. But rather, I think the critical interventions that scholars have to do drawing upon some of the names that Professor Jungam also mentioned, like Benedict Anderson or Michel Roth Trio, is to say our today world is shaped by the past and we need to understand how these present prejudices, present forces of inequity draw upon the past to make their argument. And how can we as scholars, as historians, contest that? How can we tell stories that are that undermine or prove the kind of a different world that existed and, and continues to exist? And in that sense, I think you go to the past with a sense of optimism that you can build a better future, right? So the past is not the past. It's for the sake of the past. The past is there for us to build a better future, a more ethical, inclusive future. Sorry, thank you. I will continue with what Professor Ahmad has said, you know, a fascinating thing. And also Archana. I will again go back to where I started at the beginning. History is also about power, power and domination. History is also about emancipation, especially in the context of Dalit past. One of the important things I used to look like even as a child, I used to look at the way our people are. And I used to ask like you know, our grandparents and relatives that why are we poor? like these basic things, right? One thing is that, you know, the way in which, like, you know, Dalit condition today in contemporary India or whatever we see that where they are, why are they poor? Why are they being discriminated? They are discriminated because there is a system which constructed by the human beings in which they are marginalized. Like Professor Ahmad said, this whole idea of using past to outcast people, the very idea of outcast and you know untouchability is constructed over a period of time in human history it's about how the dominant people are dominant sections of society particularly the brahmanical elites in india constructed the structure of caste system or patriarchy for that matter the way in which the marginalization of women and subordination of women's body for the reproduction of caste structures similarly what happens is that the presence of an untouchable or a Dalit for that matter in society is very critical. It doesn't mean that, you know, Hinduism can continue and Hindu society can exist without the presence of Dalits. They're very essential part of the very idea of continuation of society. But if you look at the historical construction of the past of India, taking from mainstream historians to novelists, like for example, in, I'm just finishing one very interesting novel by this very famous Telugu poet called Vishwanath Satyanarayana. He wrote this novel called Thousand Hoods or Vei Padagalu in Telugu. And it was translated by ex-Prime Minister of India, P.V. Narasimharao into Hindi. And this got uh, what you call Kendra Sahitya Academy Award. And the main character in this novel is a Brahmin who basically, because of his manudharmic entitlement, he marries women from every caste. On top of it, he has extramarital affairs with dancing women. And it's all about you know, the whole novel is about this, how this Brahmin being the purest man can have sexual relationships and the dehumanization of lower caste women is very central part of this very idea of construction of the novel. It's all about this reimagining the Brahminical life and how the ideal society should be, how a Brahmin should have access to various women of different castes because that is his entitlement. So if you look at this whole idea of construction of the past in either in terms of novels or in terms of historical texts, one of the important thing is that, you know, how the dominant people construct the history, which serves their own interests. And in this context, what happens is that, you know, for a Dalit, like for example, today, like, you know, when we were students, 
when we were looking at nationalist histories or in histories of the past one of the important thing is that how dehumanizing like that's what like in fact recently i was telling my book was translated into telugu and i i wrote a very long preface for it saying that when we were children one of the important thing is that the teachers used to make jokes about dalits in classrooms the jokes like you no know, because these are the poems written by telugu like for example poets and very famous texts which are stories translated it's all about humiliating dalits like in fact the jokes and also humiliating the one teacher humiliating the other or one poet humiliating the other poet they always used to talk about the lowest caste in society so what happens that we grew up with humiliation as part of our experience and in this context what happens is that when we look at we want to relook at the history and look at in terms of multiple narratives and also retrieve the histories of our people one of the important things we try to do is that we want to see that we also made history we also have histories of dalits who were basically creators and makers of various things not just sandals but also like recently in a, as part of dalit history month i wrote a story about this very interesting hotelier in 19th century india in central india the one of the first person to construct hotels in nagpur was a dalit and you know he had like three hotels in different parts of india these stories what happens is that the examples in history the people who are able to overcome this discrimination people who are able to prove that we are also worthy of living and we are also achievers one of the important ways in which history has been used it's a project of emancipation for me like how do you inverse the domination how do you tell the stories in which basically we retrieve our humanity retrieve our dignity in history like no we are not just mere untouchables in terms of working as scraping for our lives no not that's not the case like no if you look at the very idea of agriculture relies on the tools created by a dalit so it is these which are very very important that's why i see that at one level it's about power at other level it's also about emancipation as archana said history leaves the traces of our every generation carries the traces of history so in this context my own existence any dalit for that matter at one level we have bitter histories but also we also have achievements in histories so that's one of the reasons why looking at alternative archives or folk tales very idea of telling stories differently inversing the dominant narratives is part of this looking at retrieving the stolen humanity of people who could not speak for themselves or even if they speaken their truths were buried are hidden and those truths needs to be retrieved and told that this is also history and this that was also part of historical flow in i which is worthy of listening and which can inspire why you know archana writing about these queens and women who are basically rulers all those things is part of this telling that women are not just producing children women are doing other things similarly dalit is not just work sewing sandals dalit also he was making agriculture he was part of civilizational development the truth needs to be told to the power and we have to speak the truth to the power i see that you know this is an as professor ahmed said it's an ethical project in which we need to look at egalitarian aspiration as important part of this large reconstruction of history professor ahmed in your commentary in a book of conquest and even in the loss of hindustan you attempt to examine the misconception around the image of muslims as invaders or outsiders and argue against the perceived divide between hindu and muslim past would you shed more light over the construction of this false othering of the muslim community i really want to uh, underline and reemphasize what professor jangam has just said about the emancipatory potential for history and how important it is for us to understand that in seeking voices that have been buried by the either the brahmanical elite or the rulers this allows a inclusive present to be born and an inclusive future to be constructed and so i think in that sense the partition of the subcontinent is basically based on this idea of civilizational difference and this idea of civilizational difference emerges that there is two civilizations hindu and muslim now this idea of civilizational difference that becomes sort of stated out by jinnah in 1940 is lahore address and becomes a kind of both political fact as well as in the partition a 
or reality of, of life being lost is rests on a colonial construction. And the colonial construction of civilizational difference isn't actually a story about the subcontinent. Europe already understood that there were different civilizations that they were contesting with when the Portuguese and the Spanish were engaged in the Crusades. And uh, the idea of how to overcome and then expel Jews and Muslims from the Iberian Peninsula. And so when the Portuguese arrive to the subcontinent, they arrive with the idea that there is civilizational difference between Muslims and themselves, and thus between Muslims and what they were starting to discover were Hindus. And so this notion of civilizational difference makes one very basic claim. And that claim is that anyone who's a Muslim, the outsiderness is based on their religion. So Savarkar famously makes this argument when he lays out Hindutva's founding principle. He says, well, the Muslim always prays to Mecca. Mecca is outside. So the Muslims' holy places, unlike the Hindus' holy places, are outside of the subcontinent. It's about religion being the primary focus of outsiderness. Now, one can imagine that the Christian who is in the subcontinent prior to the Muslimat, in fact, the Portuguese have these discovery of there's a Christian population already in the subcontinent. They're very surprised. The Christian isn't imagined as an outsider on the same, same kind of basis, right? Nor is the Buddhist in that sense, even afterward. So... This construction is, this colonial construction is internalized by the political elite of the late 19th and 20th century and results in a, a politics of partition that have never stopped, right? We have never stopped partition in real sense. Partition didn't just happen in 1947. It's an ongoing process that continues to this day. The construction of the Muslim itself as a category, we don't imagine the Muslim as simply a North Indian versus Muslim as a South Indian. We don't imagine a Muslim simply as a businessman versus a farmer. We only imagine Muslims as a marker of their belief. And what I tried to do in my first book and also in the, a little bit in the second book as well, was to show how the colonial construction of this outsiderness is dependent on history, in, in reading history, as in the history that the colonial Orientalist writers are reading. So they read Persian and Sanskrit and Braj histories, romances, epics, tales. And from their consumption of history, they create this idea of outsiderness, this idea of civilizational difference. And so in reading those same stories, I'm trying to kind of reclaim a type of, which is what I try to argue for, for belonging and saying that this, this space that we call the subcontinent is a space for all kinds of religions, all kinds of people, all kinds of ideas, unlike Europe. My next question is to Archana. Formal history has predominantly focused on men, especially in a deeply patriarchal country like India. By rescuing a score of major figures from obscurity, you shine a light on the lesser known lives of past heroines. But as you mentioned in your book, you don't attempt to paint a perfect picture of these women. What are your thoughts about romanticization of the past? And when writing stories of people who were ignored by the mainstream, how do you ensure that your version is not glorified? One of the formative experiences of my life was when I attended a talk by Dr. Narayanan. At that time, he was vice president. And he started off his talk, he was addressing a group of women. He started off his talk by this very famous Sanskrit quote about the perfect women, where you say, Karyeshu Dasi, Bhojaneshu, Anapurna. You make a list of various virtues that women should have. And I was just thinking, what is this? And then he said that this is one of the most unfair things that you can do to a woman put all these expectations on a person and then if you don't do well in any one of them you become a failure and somebody to be dismissed so you may be of course in this shlok the last one is kshamayeshu dharitri you should be as forgiving as the earth so you know let everybody get away with everything 
the way the narrative for women is constructed you may be the best mathematician say but suppose you're you're not a good cook then you are considered in many ways there will be many people who will say oh this is a failure so we also tend when we want to create stories about women heroes we want to stick by this narrative that a woman has to excel in 16 things before we consider her a success and a man may excel in just one thing and still be somebody to be admired and looked up to the primary reason is of course that you don't want to lie you don't want to lie by omission and if i know something mark twain had said never let the truth get in the way of a good story so one doesn't subscribe entirely to that but it is also important to show that women as much as men can be flawed or not live up to the best that can be in that particular area and still be people to be looked at learned from admired designated as a success be a role model for some people i think it's very important in women narratives that we admit this because otherwise you are holding up modern day women to impossible standards mapping them against the stories of these historical women and saying look Ahilya Bhai, though she was a great ruler, used to feed her child by her hand every day, or whatever trope that you want. This is the part where I was I particularly guarded against trying to hide things which may not be considered acceptable in our political correctness today. Sometimes people certain behaviors which would be considered Chanakya Kootniti and to be admired in men would be just considered lying and cheating in women. So we need to not create different standards for men and women. Professor Ahmed, at the end of the loss of Hindustan, you argue for post-colonized historians. What do you mean by that, and how do you propose training for a post-colonized lens? What are your thoughts about the glorification of the pre-colonial era? Do you think we were more inclusive and diverse before the onset of colonial rule? So I think the question of were we more inclusive before colonialism is is very easily answered in the sense that what we think of inclusion was fundamentally impossible, as in all pre-modern societies, whether colonial or otherwise, were built on hierarchies, and it's either hierarchies. of rank or of blood or of language and so inclusivity in our modern sense of how we imagine is not a possibility that we can look for in the past and this goes for even religious texts so we can look at the hebrew bible or the bible or the quran or anywhere else and it can say that all believers are quote unquote equal in the in the eyes of the particular deity but in practice in the legal traditions of all religions inequality between believers and non-believers between types of believers who have access to mediation by god direct access to god direct access to ritual is part of the hierarchy that that faith constructs so it's not our task to look to the past to find inclusivity it's our task to look to the past to find how modern understandings of inequity of hierarchy are based on these pre-modern ideas and how do we kind of understand them and how do we work towards a better inclusive equitable future and the idea of a post-colonized historian is really i mean it's very simplest terms if when germany was partitioned after the second world war after in germany's heinous crimes against humanity crimes against jews and roma people invasion and destruction of vast majority of both central and eastern europe as well as obviously the world war that raged in almost all of the theaters quote unquote theaters of the world after all that that happened when germany was partitioned german historians still had something called germany that they could write through archives could still have a story that could be told about germany's past what happened after the partition of the subcontinent is that our archives which were taken by the colonial state 
rested in the in the imperial centers, Paris, Berlin, London, etc. That's why Professor Jungam went to the British Library or the British Museum's Library. And in our partitioned post-colony, we them ourselves had very little archive left to tell our own story. And we were dependent or restricted on our passports. So what happens is when we imagine the past, when we say someone could walk from, let's say, Lahore to Delhi to Pune and attend libraries in that triangle, in a sense, the, that same is not possible for the post-colonized historian. So the pre-colonial past is also partitioned by 1947. It's partitioned by archives. It's fundamentally partitioned by language after the fact. And it's partitioned by, as I said before, the civilizational difference. And so one of the things that I've tried very hard to argue for is that all of us who study on pre-colonial histories of the South Asia, we can't pretend that colonialism never happened. We can't pretend that Pakistan and India were not partitioned in 1947, which is what a lot of scholars of the medieval world have historically done. They've said, well, I work on 7th century or 8th century or 12th century, and this is pre-colonial. So even if I'm going to Berlin to read my manuscript, I don't have to ever question why am I going to Berlin to read my manuscript? I'll just continue to read those manuscripts and write my history. And that's what I mean by creating like an understanding of ourselves as a post-colonized historian whose access to the past is also partitioned by colonialism. Professor Jankum, in your book, Dalits and the Making of Modern India, you unsettle the idea of an egalitarian past. Instead, you reveal that there has always been the dominance of the Brahminical patriarchal system of oppression. The nationalist leaders, be it conservatives or reformists, did not challenge the caste system. Would you like to elaborate more on this false narrative of an inclusive past and an inclusive nationalist movement? This very well goes with what Professor Ahmad has talked about, the past, particularly the pre-colonial history, which seen whether there was there was an inclusivity or not and especially from the seeing it from the standpoint of present where we have so many aspirations by the marginalized communities and especially in the context of post-colonial world in which indigenous histories and indigenous contestations and equity diversity are very critical elements in particularly in North American societies now so in this context you know, if you look at the history of post partition past of India is that one of the important thing is that we had this nationalist narratives which basically tried to project this idea that there was this golden past in which everyone was equal and everyone belonged to each other. This whole idea of belonging to this so-called Hindu civilization. That's what one of the things as Professor Ahmed pointed out, the role of colonialism in construction of this, particularly the way in which the British and Germans and French, everyone who are obsessed with this idea of Sanskrit tradition, Sanskrit texts, and which were translated into different European languages. One of the important things is that, you know, this golden past in which everyone belonged to the same civilization and we all had this sort of thing. But the thing is that the, as the Professor Ahmad has pointed out, the very idea of civilizational developments in pre-modern world is that it is predicated on the idea of inequality in the, even among Muslims, within Muslim communities or within the Christian communities or even like Hinduism, the 19th century construction of Hinduism as a religion. But before that, it was Brahmanism in which the very idea of your existence in the so-called society used to be based on your caste if you don't belong to caste, you don't belong to the tradition. So in this context, what you see is that, in fact, the, my next book I'm trying to write is this Langdure history of caste in India. Like you know, how basically caste is not a divine creation. Caste is not given by God. It was man-made construction. So if you look at from Rigvedic time to all through the colonial period, one of the important things is that the silent future of this exists thousands of years of history of the Indian subcontinent is that caste remains as the foundational system on which every dynasty, every ruler, every ruling class existed. The very idea of economic institutions or social interactions or patriarchy 
every institution was perpetuated and founded on the basis of caste caste was the foundational institution on which the subcontinental history has been built but if you look at the history of india like the modern or medieval any sort of histories the very few people acknowledge that caste is the foundation of india's and that's what like like there are this medieval and also early modern historians like sanjay subramanyam and others who talk about this idea that india's share in the world economy and also how india used to be very important contributor to the world economy and how india produced this very important cotton textiles which were having demand in world markets who are those producers all that wealth was built on the labor of lower caste people it's most of the time they were not paid in kind or in money it's caste based bonded labor or free labor caste obligation if you look at weaving community or even for that matter sandal maker even any community for that matter in pre modern world most of them are doing their job as part of the caste obligation they are not being compensated equally for the labor and that's when what you see is that india was able to massively sell to the world market at subsidized prices precisely because no one is paying so in this context what happens is that the very foundational aspect of indian subcontinent is that this inequality becomes entrenched and it is inequality which is foundational both to the idea of economic wealth or idea of political glory and that's what like each generation like for example for thousands of years like taking from ancient rigvedic period to mauryas guptas and also afterwards muslim empire to all the way to british colonial rule one of the important thing is that everyone latched on to this existing system no one tried to disturb it like take islamic rulers believed in this egalitarian principles but inequality is important for them to perpetuate the political rule similarly british like they are supposed to be enlightenment and equality democracy everything but they did not want to disrupt caste system instead they translated all sanskritic texts and tried to eulogize brahmanism and constructed hinduism so in this context what you see is that these inequality becomes foundational to the very idea of this civilization in the context of nationalism and anti colonial nationalism and imagination of the nation is that this brahmanical imagination becomes foundational take it for that matter hind swaraj by gandhi or nehru's discovery of india or even for that matter take any seminal text written by any anti colonial nationalist in india it's all about reminiscences about their brahmanical past which is nothing but any inegalitarian past in which basically subordination of women subordination of lower caste becomes central to the idea of imagination of civilization so that's why i see this very interesting thing like you know in the development of longing and belonging that muslim dalit and also women are very important people who bear the stigma of the dominant people dominant cultures that's why the way in which their relationship to this nation state or civilization or history is constantly changing because of the way in which you see that this has been redrawn and redrafted continuously Archana you have also co-written the award winning series A History of India for Children as we have been discussing today mainstream history tends to play out the story of the victors and for most of us our first introduction to history is as children how do you incorporate a nuanced multi-layered narrative of the past for children this issue is something that me and my co-writer my sister shruti garudia we felt very strongly about because history is written not necessarily by the victors in that time about which it is written but it is written by the people who are victors currently who are controlling the narrative today for example when we talk about say early medieval india in the north we tend to consider it as a kind of dark ages but it was really in the south it was a time of great success and glory and all but we'll study when we study history with whatever cbse textbooks which are essentially national we do tend to be very delhi centric because today delhi is the capital of india so this is something which we were very careful that we were writing in terms of a regional discourse we were writing a history of india so south india tends to be neglected northeast india tends to be neglected so many parts of india their narratives their stories are not part of india 
So we tried to include it. Of course, we still feel that we didn't do justice to certain areas. But the other part is including, as I said, women and marginalized communities. So for gender, we made it a point that in every chapter, we would talk about the situation of women. We would try and highlight a couple of women heroes of that period. The other thing that we did to sort of not get dominated by one narrative is that we would give excerpts of quotations by travelers or people who were outsiders in a way, who may have differed from that narrative or who may have held it up, whatever, but to give a slightly different perspective. And I think quite often we would take some contentious issue in history and about it and place the arguments in front of the children. We don't know this, but this is what the people for it say and this is what the people against it say. And in our estimation, this is what it is, but here is the data. And so there was an invitation for the children to not accept what is said, even by us, but to actually try and analyze it and realize that at the end of the day, this truth comes from distilling so many sources of information and you can carry out this exercise yourself. And I think we were also reasonably irreverent. We stopped taking history as a given truth. It is at the end of the day, because everything is not in front of you, it is a scientific discipline where you choose a theory which fits all the known facts, as I said earlier. And also to give one other thing which we really focused on in our book is we gave sections on what was happening in the rest of the world. To try and we tend to see the Indian story as a kind of monolith, which is not affected by anything that happens. But we did have so many interactions, things that happened here. We learned things from people. People learned things from us. And that people got in it. We continuously had influences coming into India, which we absorbed seamlessly. This was something which we felt that the Indian culture is a composite culture. I'd just like to give an example. We gave one thing that say, take a favorite dish of India, paneer makhni. Put down the ingredients used in the recipe and talked about when each of them came to India. And if you say something that you're looking at 4,000 years ago, out of a list of 20 ingredients, perhaps only two or three of them would have been available in India 4,000 years ago. And they all came in at different points of time. And to realize that this dish in a way is a microcosm of our culture. There is nothing, so to say, pure <laughs> and given from a long time. So that. Those were the attempts of trying to introduce this and an attempt to try and make the child question everything that they come across. Professor Jangam, in your book, you have also argued that mainstream writers have privileged the Hindu Brahminical worldview regarding conceptualization of our past. In recent times, there has been several discussions around passing the mic and many from the DBA community have had contrasting views on this practice. Do you have any thoughts about this practice? And do you see any repercussions of the anti-caste discussion in academic spheres? One of the important attempts of people like me and many of the Dalit Bahujans are trying to do, even for that matter, lots of feminist historians are trying to do is that there is an alternative way of looking at history. And one of the important ways, as I said earlier, the foundational Civilizational foundation is based on inequality and also caste inequality as the source of the civilization. So, but the thing is that what we have to understand, the dominance and inequality are part of the dominant structure. But what happens is that those dominance has always been contested. Dalits, like for example, or even for that matter, women, for example, Archana is talking about women heroes, for example, who went against the grain and you know, tried to present picture of themselves in a very different way, not like traditional women. So in the similarly, the anti-caste narrative is as old as the caste narratives. So they, they in fact walked parallelly to each other. The power of anti-caste narrative is so important that the very idea of self and dignity is preserved through these alternative narratives. That's why folk tales are very, very important part 
because if you look at the lower caste i don't know whether north india has or not this tradition we have something called caste puranas especially in telugu land like east caste as its own purana the community who narrated this caste purana bila they are called dependent caste like each dominant untouchable caste for example has four or five dependent castes and the role of dependent caste is to narrate the history of these communities in terms of folk tales as children i used to see like you know these communities which narrate these stories come to the village especially in summer and also in winter nights and they basically drew this performances folk performances these satellite communities are like social archive one of the important theme of this performance and the narration is that about telling to the untouchable communities that the kind of history they had like for example dalit ramayana we only think about ramayana in terms of ram and sita but if you look at dalit ramayana ravana it starts with ravana not with rama that's what like and in this context what happens is that this anti caste narrative or anti caste histories are as old as the caste domination and it is this anti caste tradition which gets preserved that's what like you no know, in fact uh, the dalit existence and dalit survival or women survival that itself is a victory again is so many like we are living with dignity means that itself is a biggest victory in human history because everything is stacked against you right you are denied of education you are denied of proper food like for example you come from untouchable background you are not supposed to eat ghee you are not supposed to eat certain ingredients like if you look at even in contemporary india these things happen the very idea that you know, these people are surviving because they had this alternative perception of their own existence each caste has a code language to talk about their enemies now that's what the these are all what do you call preservative tactics that's how you know communities preserve themselves and that's why in reconstructing the histories of these communities one of the important thing is that how they are able to survive and also belong to each other the stories of belonging for them is very very important when enemy attacks or when enemy threat comes in this communitarian existence is very important part of survival tactic these narratives and stories are become a part of important part of the very idea of their existence this is what the contemporary aspiration particularly by dalit bahujan and anti caste communities is that create an egalitarian past they doesn't mean that you have to create stories these are all part of aspirations which are nurtured and if you look at the stories of different figures in ancient history or even in folk tales what is it that they aspired for a different world in which equality and dignity was critical to the very idea of humanity <laughs>